As I have with the previous two messages, I'd like to begin with a prayer of lament, but this time I merely want to read God's word to you. So if you just want to lay your eyes on Psalm 94 as I pray it, let us use this to set our hearts today around God's word. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, and repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. They say the Lord does not see, the Lord, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of a man. They are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death, but the Lord has become my stronghold and the God of, or my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe out their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. God, we thank you for words like this in the Bible. And remind us that, Jesus, you bought the right to make everything right. So help us now to hear your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 94 is a lament psalm. And what you hear when you, you read in Psalm 94 depends a lot on your experience. The psalm is designed to convict us, it's designed to teach us, it's designed to unite us. So today is the third and final week of this series on racial harmony, and my vision from the very beginning is to try and help our church to take some steps in looking more like the church that Jesus bought, that we would be one people. Given both the history of our church, our deep commitment to biblical orthodoxy, our core value of unity in the midst of diversity, what God has been doing in our midst over the last five years, and where we are located in the city, on the edge of the suburbs and the city, we have a unique opportunity to enter into this conversation to see how the Lord might help continue to grow us and how we might be a part of the solution of the racial disharmony that still exists in the church. We were doing some research, because we're thinking about how do we use the ministry center better, maybe even to serve our community. We did some statistical analysis, and do you know that within a five-mile radius of our church, five miles from this location, the population is 22% minority. If you go 
just south of 96th Street, that population is 50%. And many of us live in those neighborhoods, and yet our church doesn't look like our community. And so we ought to think about what that means, about our relationships, and what we can do to help our church be able to reflect not only the bride of Christ, but also where we are in the city of Indianapolis. The last two weeks, I've tried to help you understand what it means to walk together and to weep together. Began in Colossians 3, trying to help you see that the gospel gets underneath the most strident and difficult and emotionally laden and historically informed categories in any culture, and that's been true from the very beginning when the gospel went out. I gave you some definitions that I want to review, just so that we're all on the same page. You may not have been here, but when I say ethnicity, this is what I mean. I mean the classification of groups of people based upon their culture or their geographic grouping or their origins. When I say culture, I mean typical beliefs, behaviors, customs of a group of people. Best illustration was the windmill cookies. I've got plenty of them now, so I'm good, thank you. (laughs) Prejudice beliefs and attitudes toward a person based upon that, their association with a group. So you're like this because that's how all of y'all are. Race, a socially constructed term in the United States that deconstructed ethnicity, no longer where you're from in terms of region of the world or your culture into categories that were primarily designated as white and colored in conjunction with the cultural view that whites were superior. And then racism is the systemization of that racial ideology or that racial idea gets baked into our language, how we talk, the laws, how we relate to one another, the culture, who we let our kids date and marry, and our thinking, how we feel about one another, leading to the unkind and unfair treatment of people based upon the belief that they are inferior. So those are important words because they define the landscape of how we talk about this. And then last week I tried to help you understand what is, what's a model look like? And so I suggested that we need to love one another, Colossians 3. We need to listen to one another, James chapter 1. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. We need to lament together so we can weep with those who weep. And now we need to learn from one another and also leverage that work so that we can work together for the good of the church, for the advancement of the kingdom, and for the unification of the body. So today is the last step that we're going to take together as we think through, okay, what does it mean to work together? Psalm 94 is a wonderful lament psalm in that it provides a voice about injustice And it helps to frame the thoughts that we should have about what do we do with the brokenness in the world. So I want to help you to see some things in this text. Number one, notice this. Notice that there's a fundamental desire for justice. So the psalm begins with a cry to God. It says, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Notice the word vengeance is used twice. It's a word that means justice or equity, fairness. And, and, and notice that there's a longing for justice to be done. Verse two says, rise up, O judge of the earth, and repay to the proud what they deserve. So what I want you to notice just fundamentally is that there is a longing for justice. And even this 
prayer for divine vengeance is in fact a godly and inspired emotion. But are you okay with that? Because some people think that if there's forgiveness and love, then you don't need to be concerned about justice. And that's not how the Bible operates. Now let me be clear, you're not to take your own vengeance. Romans 12, 19 is very clear. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we're not to take our own vengeance. We're not to mete out our own justice. So how does justice then come to a society? Well, that's ultimately God's responsibility in the future, but until then, God has given us government and governmental agencies that are responsible for the meeting out of justice. He gives us systems of justice. Romans 13, verse one, or verse three and four. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Now, I want you to know something, that when, when Paul writes this, God's servant for your good was an ungodly ruler in the midst of a pagan nation. He says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So from a foundational theological and biblical perspective, you need to understand that government, even in all of its broken forms, government is designed to be the servant of God's will for justice in order to be done. Now that's important for a couple reasons. It's firstly important because we should be thankful for the gift of government even though it is often broken. We ought to be thankful for the gift of courts and laws. We ought to be thankful for law enforcement because without police and judges and people who serve in Congress and state legislatures, the common grace of God would not be applicable as it is when those things are there and they exist. This is really important because some of you serve in those systems, and you need to know we praise God that you're there. We're thankful that we have Christian judges and Christian people who run for political office and Christian police officers who do their very best to bring real justice into the world, and they ought to be honored and affirmed, not denigrated, for their gift of service and getting into those systems. And we ought to pray for them because they're entering into a system that has layers of brokenness built into it, and it is at times very, very difficult to be a gospel-loving, peace-desiring, justice-fulfilling, kingdom-coming sort of Christian in those environments. And we need Christians to say, I wanna go there. I wanna go there. I wanna do what I can. And some of you who are living in those worlds, you know how dark and how hard it can be and how lonely it is. And we wanna support you. So just know that justice is a gift from God. Secondly, you need to realize that the reason that the psalmist is writing this is because this divine system of justice is not working. Something is broken. So it's not just that the psalmist is being personally affected, that he has personal injustices that are happening, but it's also that the God-given system for making those wrongs right is also broken, and when that happens, it's doubly scary and doubly frustrating. Now some of you are thinking, whoa, wait a minute, where are you getting that from? Let me show you, look at verses 20 and 21. Psalm 94, 
Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. The idea is there's this mob mentality, the pressure of the group keeps things in an unjust framework, and then even those who have power use their power to write laws that then facilitate injustice. Now, lest you think, oh, these are invaders that are coming in, mm -mm -mm. Psalm 94 is about Jewish people who rose to power and became wicked and then oppressed their own people. And so this psalm is written because there's a frustration that the very systems that are supposed to bring about justice are actually not bringing about justice. Now, why is that important? It's important because there are some people in our church who when they come to Psalm 94, what I just said, they feel it in a way that some of us don't. I'm sure all of us know certain levels of injustice. We've all had things happen to us that are wrong. But when you've had someone treat you as inferior and when the system doesn't seem to make that right, and that happens a few times or five or six or 10, or you got a history of that, it begins to create an emotional weariness that when you hear Psalm 94, you're like, oh, finally, somebody prayed that. It's one thing when you've been hurt. It's another thing when the scales of justice seem to tip in the wrong direction. So the point is that desire for justice isn't wrong. In fact, it's right. And the desire for justice is not incongruent with the concepts of love and forgiveness. They actually go together. Here's the second thing. We find in this text a weariness with injustice. So the psalmist is tired. Verse three, oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long will the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words and all the evildoers boast. So they, they get away with it, God, and they boast about it. And it's so frustrating when you can't do anything about it. Verse five, they crush your people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. So he mourns here the frustration, the emotional burden of what it's like when you're unfairly treated and also when it seems as though nothing is changing. To those of you who are in our white majority culture, I'm sure you've experienced moments where you were treated unfairly. I'm absolutely sure that that happened. You're to pray this kind of prayer when that happens to you, when it happens at work, when it happens with somebody else, when, when you've been treated unfairly, Psalm 94 is for you. The one thing I would tell you, though, is that you understand this at a personal level, and typically most white people come to a text like this and they see that as an individual issue, not as a group issue. And you may see it as a group issue, but I think for most of us, when something happens to a white person in our culture, we don't feel the same thing that an African-American feels when something happens to an African-American. And part of the reason is, is because historically, whites haven't been treated as an entire class of people, whereas our African-American brothers and sisters have. And so we tend to see things as individual. I didn't do anything wrong, this doesn't affect me, I don't feel it emotionally where Psalm 94 is identifying this corporate frustration, this, this group frustration. It's important for you to understand the difference between your sense of injustice and perhaps your African-American brothers and sisters' sense of injustice. You're coming at it from two different perspectives. Now, 
Let me pastor our minority brothers and sisters for a moment because this text is really helpful when to quote Fannie Lou Hamer, you are sick and tired of being sick and tired. This text is really important because it validates the frustration in whatever it is. And here's the thing, it allows you to take that burden to the Lord first. And you need to do that because you're a Christian. All Christians need to do this. For any hurt, we're always to take our hurts to the Lord first. Why? Because if we don't, the poisonous mist of bitterness can set in. And if you allow the poisonous mist of bitterness to set in, you could begin to allow your hurts to define you instead of refine you. And you can actually allow injustice to become your identity instead of a part of your history. I'm not saying that the past or future um, hurts should be disregarded, but what I am saying is that our commitment for change has to come out of a gospel commitment, not just out of grievance. Grievances are legit, but if it's just grievance, that's gonna be a problem. And then it can skew how you see things as all hurts and sin issues can tend to skew things. Now hear me, I'm a white pastor, I feel like I'm ahead of my skis a little bit on this, in fact, me saying this. I feel like the onus lies more on me to lean into this from a position of learning and sensitivity and at the same time to be able to pastor both groups of people at the same time. Because hurts can become identity if we're not careful. Instead of allowing the identity of who Jesus is to transform our hurts, so that then we can deal with them and address them as they need to be addressed. So I'm not saying they shouldn't be addressed. I'm just saying where you start from makes all the difference in the world. Verse six, they kill the widow and the sojourner, they murder the fatherless, and they say the Lord does not see. Why does he point out the widow and the fatherless? Oh, he points them out because they are the ones who are the easiest to persecute and to oppress because they have no access to power. They can't change their circumstances easily. They don't have somebody advocating upon, uh, on their behalf. So then he appeals, verse 18, understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He, he calls on his own people to realize what they're doing. So again, this isn't an external threat, this is an internal threat calls on them to realize what is happening. One commentator says this, there is a, was a breakdown of law and order and the mechanisms designed to protect the innocent became the instruments of violence. And that, that's just what people do. Every culture, every society, that's what we do in our brokenness. That's how you sinfully use the good grace of government or you sinfully use the good grace of your power or your authority. That's what you do at work when you rise to the top and you don't use that for the good of others. You use it for yourself and you use it to oppress people so you can get ahead. We always do that when we are godless and wicked. And the point is, is that the church should be different. Unfortunately, the church hasn't been different. Unless you think this is just a U.S. history issue or a humanity issue, this has also been a church issue. Let me give you some examples. These are painful for me to share. 
I was recently at the Museum of the Bible and there was an exhibit called the Slave's Bible. It featured a Bible or a series of Bibles that had sections cut out of them and then given to slaves. They cut out Exodus and Psalms and parts of Galatians and the reason they did so was to keep slaves in submission. If you were to go back, it would not be hard to find sermons or writings that attempt to justify segregation or slavery based upon the gross misuse of the text. You can find sermons. Southern Baptist Convention, largest Protestant denomination in the United States, began in 1845. Do you know why it began? It began over a controversy of whether or not missionaries could own slaves and still be qualified for service. Churches in the North said, no, slaveholding is a disqualification. Churches in the South said, no, it's not, and they split. So the foundation of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 has at its core the issue of slavery. Now, that didn't just happen with them. The Methodist Church did the same thing. The Presbyterian Church did as well. And thankfully, the SBC repented of that, owned up to their sinful beginnings, and passed a resolution that that was wrong and have seek to work to bring reconciliation, worked really hard toward that end. But it's important to remember that that official resolution of repentance was passed in 1995. The African Methodist Episcopal Church, first Protestant black denomination founded by African Americans, but it was started when Richard Allen, an African American man, and Absalom Jones were removed from their church for praying in the wrong pew. And then even our heroes like George Whitfield, there are many of them who we esteem who are just on the complete wrong side of the issue of slavery, grievously so. And he became a staunch advocate for the expansion of slavery in Georgia. So, white brothers and sisters, before you go down your line about Martin Luther King and his theology or his um, morality, before you go there, you need to wrestle also that there are things in people who we esteem that we would look at and groan about. So you gotta be careful because the issues have not always been external to the church, they've often been internal to the church. Now I could give you many, many more examples. I'll stop there because I know you feel what I feel, like whoa. So, ready for some hope? I received an email last week from Keith White who's an African-American sheriff, he's a member of our church and told me about an exchange conversation he had with Kirk Collins member of our church, who's a white man, who's an officer with IMPD. Here's what he wrote. This is from Keith. I have their permission to share this. I want to tell you the story about unity at College Park that extends to the streets of Indianapolis. Kurt Collins, who's an IMPD officer, blue, and myself, Sheriff Brown, are brothers, and we get along really well. Our families have fellowshiped together outside of the church. We found ourselves working together on the streets. At one point, we were at 40th and Winthrop where shots were fired and issues with issues with juveniles. And after things settled down, we were all standing around talking, all IMPD, IMPD blue, all majority culture, and me, brown, minority culture. When Kurt stepped forward and gave me a brotherly hug and said, hi, brother, and I reciprocated. I could see the wonder and the puzzled look on the other officers' faces. There are two things going on in that moment. Historically, blue, IMPD, and brown have not worked real well together. And as you know, our two cultures have issues. He means African-American and white. 
Kurt told me afterwards that some of the officers asked him, what was that about? And he explained that we are brothers in Christ. And so Kurt and I are working to do what you're preaching about, and it's good to see that other people notice. Amen, right? Amen. So hope. Verse nine. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? When injustice happens, you can know God heard it all. God saw it all. He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, he knows the thoughts of a man. They are but breath. This is what you do when you've experienced hurt. You take this to the Lord. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. He doesn't mean you discipline because they're doing something wrong. He means that you teach through hardship. So the idea is this. This is really wrong. I'm going to work to change it. But meantime, it's not going to affect my heart, and I'm going to thank God that I get to learn hard things, and I'm going to use it for God's glory, not for my own bitterness. I'm going to work hard to change it, but I'm going to work hard to embrace the hardship in terms of what it does in the midst of my soul. Verses 14 and 15. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Justice will return to the righteous, and all of the upright in heart will follow it. Verses 16. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Oh, church, this is the role of the church when hardships come. That we become a refuge for the weary soul. Do you want your church to be a refuge for the weary soul? In the African-American tradition, the church had to be that because all week long, our brothers and sisters were told, you're not worth something, you're of lesser value, you're diminished, and there's no hope of anything changing. So if you look at the history of the African-American church, that's why titles were important because titles indicated dignity. And when you've been called racial slurs all week, for someone to call you deacon so-and-so meant something. That's why folks dressed up, because they wanted to demonstrate and clarify their dignity. And Sunday morning became a moment when people gathered together and said, we're going to connect to who we really are in Christ. We're going to be reminded of our dignity in the gospel. We're going to be reminded that the image of God matters and that we have hope in the person and work of Jesus. That's what church was about. That's what I want our church to keep being about. I want Sundays to be a moment when people from all walks of life and different ethnicities come and they gather and we know that there here is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no circumcised or uncircumcised. We are all in Christ and Christ is in us all, right? So that when you're walking down the hallways of this church and you're greeted by a brother or sister of a different ethnicity, that in that greeting you're communicating, you're an image bearer and I'm an image bearer, and we are both not perfect people, but by God's grace we know a perfect Savior. And the church is not a perfect place. This church isn't a perfect place. My goodness, you're here and you've messed it all up. (laughs) But the church is the best we've got until Jesus comes. And this little assembly, this outpost, This this little place where we come into that is an embassy of the new heaven and the new earth is the place that we gather in order to be reminded who we really are and what life is really all about. So let's make this church on Sundays that for every single person who comes. Can we agree to that? 
So what does that look like? Let me give you some handles. Many of you have asked, so what do we do? What do we do? Let me give you four arenas to think about. Number one, in regards to the spiritual arena, I want to encourage you to pray that the Lord would help your heart to be in the right place. Help you to live out the gospel through your ethnicity and through your culture. I can't change that I'm 6'5". I can't change that I have a Dutch heritage. I can't change the color of my skin. But I can allow the gospel to get inside all of that and then to live that out. I'm going to eat windmill cookies for the glory of God till Jesus comes. (laughs) If you're here and you've failed in regards to racial harmony, maybe your attitude has been not good, maybe your actions have been subpar, maybe you have certain things that you say that aren't outright racist but they're racially informed and you felt convicted about that, brother or sister, confess that to the Lord and repent. The cross is powerful enough to forgive us of all of our sins, including this one. And the church is not made up of perfect people. It's made up of people who blow it, who struggle, who wrestle, even people who don't see everything the same way, but yet they know one thing. I know Jesus, you know Jesus. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, you don't have to agree with everything I've said through these sermon series. The extent to which I've helped you understand what the Bible says, I hope you would believe that. But at a minimum, as you walk away from this series, to go, you know what, I, I love Jesus, Mark loves Jesus, my brother loves Jesus, and somehow we gotta figure out how to move forward together. You could take time to read some books on racial harmony. We have a number of them. Listen to podcasts of, of people who are not in your tribe. Learn from minority leaders, particularly in those of us who are in majority culture. Hear what they're saying. So, Take some steps from a spiritual framework. Just be sure your heart's in the right place and check it often. Secondly, the emotional category. I hope that this series has given you some additional level of compassion. I've tried as hard as I can to represent sort of both perspectives, but also in particular, I've erred, I've erred on the side of trying to represent our minority brothers and sisters to help those of us in majority culture understand where they're coming from. I want you to have your first step to be to weep with those who weep, to be humble, to be sensitive, and then when you make a mistake, and listen, I have made so many, insensitive, didn't understand, look back now, what was I thinking? Own it, and then just see the bigger picture and stay in the conversation. But let that emotional framework change how you see the world. Several months ago, I was uh, meeting one of our guest speakers at his hotel for breakfast. So I got there, the hotel has a buffet. I didn't want to just walk in and eat without paying for it. So I stopped up at the desk to say to the person who was working there that I wanted to pay for my meal. So it was an African-American woman at the desk. I walked up, I said, ma'am, we have a guy who's staying here um, from our church. He's eating breakfast and I'd like to go in and, and be able to have breakfast with him. So could you just put it on the bill? And there must've been something about my demeanor or something, I don't know what it was, but she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You coming in here and telling me what you're gonna do and what I need to do? And I was like, good gravy, it's 6.30 in the morning, I've already ticked somebody off. This day's starting off really well. (laughs) And at that moment, I've got a decision to make. I can get personally offended and just be like, I'm trying to do what's right. What are you getting in my grill for? I mean, I can go there. I mean, 
I can go there. Uh, and, I, and I could, like, where's the manager? I could appeal up. But as I was studying this, I was like, you know what? I wonder how many white men have been demanding to this woman in her lifetime. And I just took a step back and I said, ma'am, I mean no disrespect. I'm sorry. Let me restart. So there's a guy staying in your hotel. We've paid for his room. I just want to meet him for breakfast. I haven't paid for it. And I just want to go and eat breakfast with him. He said, oh, you just want to eat breakfast? I was like, yeah. Well, go on, get yourself some breakfast. I was like, all right, here we go. So <laughs> it was all good, right? And what could have been a really disastrous moment. And I don't know how, what's going on behind there, but I can guess. And I think it's just the Christian thing and the right thing to do, to lean in with compassion, not with, how dare you? So have the emotional framework. Third, relational. I would be nowhere in this discussion without some really good brothers in this church who've helped me. They're friends, sisters as well. Even after the service, a couple brothers, hey, have you thought about maybe this? Thank you, I received that. In order to do this, you need friends that don't look like you. That's why we have our 3DG group, diversity discipleship discussion group. They meet once a month. But here's the thing. You need them as a true friend, not as your diversity consultant. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. If every time you take an African-American brother out to coffee, all you're talking about is diversity, that gets really old. So here's what I want you to do. I want you just to realize the need to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to be friends. Sure, you can talk about it, but if this is all you're talking about, that's not friendship. That's consulting. And your relationship's only going to go so far. So think that way. And listen, I've done that. I've had a brother say, is this all we're going to talk about? I was like, ah. No. <laughs> no. How about those pacers, you know? I mean, so. I'm just telling you, it's where I live. Made those mistakes. Finally, societal. Oh, church, we live in a broken world, and I want you to see your role in stepping into this space. Instead of us falling into the categories of race blindness or race baiting, we need to realize our role is to enter as Christians into the complicated arenas of life. First, don't allow your history to inform your response to everything. You may run into some people in our church, if you're an African American, you're like, man, that guy's got issues. Yeah, he's just a little weird. And he may have issues, but he's also a little weird. And if I have the conversation with him, I'm going to go, man, that was weird. And it has nothing to do necessarily with a racial barrier or an ethnic barrier. It just has to do with somebody who's just a little different. Now, granted, there may be other people who that is an issue. And that's the hard part if you come to this church, knowing what's the difference. And I don't know how to help you with that. And I pray that God will help you. But I know that if you come in with a guarded heart, it's going to be worse. And for those of us who are majority culture, when you hear somebody say something that's got a racial overtone, don't laugh. In fact, call it out. Tell them, stop it. I have friends that you're talking about. Don't talk that way. And then when you go back to your cubicle and people mock you and you know what it feels like to be isolated, just welcome to the party, brother. 
And take Psalm 94 and remind your heart that when the cares of my soul are many, your consolations cheer my soul. I will be alone, but I will be right. And then when you find injustice, do what you can to make it right. Speak up. Identify it. Call it out. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were traveling together. We were in a different city. There's a man next to us who was having dinner by himself, and when the waitress came to take his drink order, he was incredibly condescending. He was a white man, she was an African-American woman, and his tone was awful. When she brought his drink order, it only got worse. His appetizer, when she brought that, it just got amped up even more. He berated her. Sitting there, looking at my wife, I'm just, I'm mad. She tapped out, the manager took care of the, the table from that point on. So after the meal was done, I said to my wife, hey, you have some cash in your purse? She said, I do. So I grabbed some. And standing over by the bar was this woman. And I went up to her and I said, ma'am, I want you to know I heard the tone that that man addressed you. And I just want to say to you, I'm really sorry. And you handled that very, very graciously. And I just want to give you a tip for being so gracious to somebody who didn't deserve it. And she went, oh, man, oh, like this. <laughs> and then she said, it was Jim, the manager, Jim, Jim, come here. So Jim, manager, he goes, tell him. And so I, I said, here's what happened. And, uh, <laughs> and so I said, this is what happened. And this lady, I mean, she was incredibly gracious. And he said, man, thank you so much. Said, I told you, I told you. Pat her on the shoulder, and I said, man, well done. You were really gracious. I was really impressed. Just want to encourage you today. I saw it. As I was making my way out, our waiter was a six-foot-five African-American dude. He was built and jacked. I mean, he's a big dude. I want to look like him someday. And <laughs> deep voice. He's walking out. He goes, hey. <laughs> he gave a little fist bump, and he was like, yeah, it was cool. I share that example with you not to make much of our little thing, but I just want you to know those little things make a difference. I don't know if that guy had any prejudices or not at that table. All I know is that Rachel was hurting and the racial difference didn't help at all. So God calls us as a church to weep together, to walk together, to work together. In the John Perkins words, there is no institution on earth more equipped or more capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. That's so true. And may God help us to be that kind of church, one people under the banner of Jesus to bring peace and to pursue it. So Lord, help us now to be the kind of people who believe that one day, Jesus, you're gonna make it all right and who then live in light of that reality Help us to know what it means to work together for the good of the world that needs to see what Jesus can really do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.